My name is John Krotek, and I want to welcome you to Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero. We're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all before they burn it down. Our guest for this episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero, is a United States Army veteran, dog handler, and serious dog training expert and sage, Mr. Ryan Matthews. I actually met Ryan a few weeks ago at the PodFest Multimedia Expo in Orlando. And let me tell you, the guy had an aura hanging around him. This guy has a lot of positive things going on. We were on the same discussion panel, and and it just was great. It's just really good. And we'll get more into the conversation as we go ahead. But he's got some ideas about dog training and, and a human bridge that is really just fascinating to me. And, and I hope he, we touch upon that as the conversation goes on. But Ryan's been training dogs since 2002. He began his career in dog training with training and handling elite military working dogs, also known as MWDs. Well, in the Army, he performed bite protection training, bomb threat sweeps, secret service missions, and combat to deployment to Iraq with his MWD named Zito, where he worked with special forces and infantry units. After transitioning, Ryan founded and is the head dog trainer of the World of Dog Training, .com. I'm just adding that on there because he's got an incredible website. Ryan takes a personalized approach with every single dog that he trains. He's all heart and then a lot more. He's working on projects to incorporate some of his canine training techniques into the corporate human world, which again, I, I think is just doggone fascinating. No pun intended. <laughs> I am humbled and honored to have Ryan Matthews on Straight Out of Combat Radio for this episode. Welcome, Ryan. We finally did it, man. We finally did. Well, thank you for that warm, kind introduction, John. I appreciate you doing that, and I'm really happy to be here. I've been stalking you for quite a while, man, so it was really an honor to meet you in person at PodFest. That's awesome, man. And I you know, I, I wondered why my ears and throat was burning, but I'm just joking. But it's all good, man. But uh, no, seriously, though, I'm, I'm, we're, not, we're smoking and joking now, but when I met Ryan and we were on the same panel there at the Military Creator Con, he had an aura around him and an energy around him that attracted people. And honestly, I thought he was from New York City. But then when he when he said, no, I'm from L.A., then it all made sense because <laughs> he dresses smart. He's got the right shoes. He's got the right look. He wears a hat. I mean, the whole package is good. And, and let alone what he's wearing, it's what's in his mind and what he does with dogs that makes it even more cool. So. It's not about me or my thoughts about you. It's really about your you, Ryan. And I want to know, you know, what was it like growing up in your household? And, and like, who were your mentors? What was going on when you were coming along? Wow. I love this question, John. And, you know, what I love about it is that I've never been asked this on, you know, over 100 interviews that I've done. No one's ever asked me this in the way that you have. And so when we look at mentors, the only mentor that I would say that I had would be my grandmother. She's been my one constant um, throughout my life. And so 
my childhood was pretty dysfunctional. I, it started with, you know, I, I, and if it's okay, John, do I have permission to go pretty deep here with you and your oh, audience? Oh yeah, man, absolutely. That's what this show is about. You know, this is about getting rid of the fear of being authentic. So it's all good, brother. Well, we're going to, we're going to start off with punching them in the mouth in a loving, kind way to hope to be of service. So my childhood really was one of lots of violence, lots of isolation and abandonment. And one of the things that had happened that was most imprinting was being abandoned for days as a little kid and also being molested by by a teenage boy when I was like probably eight, I believe. And this is something that I had never shared until in my 30s because I thought that, well, number one is I wanted to bury it and not acknowledge it. And two is I thought people would judge me. And so that was you know a part of childhood. And so the other part was me always trying to be someone who I was not. And also, I didn't get that lesson into me being authentically who and what I am until my 30s. And so, John, really, I've been, I've been a little boy trapped in a man's body nearly my entire life up until just a few years ago. And that was because I was always trying to be the person that I thought I needed to be for others. And in all honesty, that was somewhat of a roughneck, like, you know, a, a kind of tougher person, an intimidating person, violent thoughts, and not really doing great things, looking for the next high. And I don't mean drugs, the next place where I could go for excitement to get my heart racing and my adrenaline going. And that was way before the military. That was, you know, early teens. Yeah. And so that was a little bit of my childhood. It was really just being someone who I was not. And I got to say, you know, it was actually fun for me back then. And, you know, you don't know what you don't know, right? Until you know it. And so that was a piece of childhood. You know, thanks for sharing that because, you know, that's where we have the common ground. I kind of went through the same thing. It was an, it was a, it was an older child, older kid on a neighborhood, you know, sleepover. And I went over there one way and I ended up another way. And the reason why I never said anything to anybody was exactly like you just described, Ryan, was the social stigma that was attached to something like that. And I pretty much did the same thing that you did, you know, lived a life uh, on the outside that was somebody different from who I was on the inside. And for me, it was a little bit later in life with a traumatic brain injury and an alcohol-induced accident that brought all that. So there's the common ground, but it does play on you. And uh, yeah, the excitement, the adrenaline, the motorcycles, the skydiving, the mountain climbing. Now I realize why I constantly push the envelope, which is probably something you can relate to. Absolutely. And and it shows up in different ways as well. And another thing that I wanted to highlight to really, I think this may hit home for your audience. And one thing also was that, John, I thought I was the only one. I really did. I thought I was the only one that had been molested. I thought none of my friends or no one in my community had 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 have had that happen to them. And I discovered something far different than what I thought to be true at a retreat where it was this open circle of 12 of us veterans and we all went around and every single person, it's not like this was a requirement to join the retreat. Every single person in that room had admitted that they were a victim of sexual violence, sexual assault as a kid. Wow. It just blew my mind. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's crazy. And so I don't want to make the show about this by any means, but what I did want to do 
was potentially let your audience know that, number one, they're not alone. And sometimes when we think we're the only one, we're really not. And the other part that I wanted to share was that I have found that I have some certain patterns that aren't always serving me in that I tend to gravitate towards women as friends. And I, it wasn't until my 30s that I realized why I've been doing that. I thought that was just like, I like beautiful women. No, it's not that necessarily. It's that um, women feel safe. And, you know, I can say this was really remarkable when I had met you, John, was that, and, and I don't normally do this. So that goes to show as to the caliber person that you are, is that I immediately felt safe with you when I had met you on that panel. And, and I can't say that I find that very often where there's a male where I automatically feel like I can feel safe. I can trust them. I can have, I can care for them and they aren't going to, you know, have some kind of weird agenda. It's again, this imprinting kind of thing. And so um, I thought that was an interesting realization as it relates to women. Wow. That is, you know, what an insight, you know, I kind of can relate to that as well. And, and, and I, and I, you know, it's almost like, I'm you know, I'm talking to a mirror, you know, we're, we're here, you're in California, I'm here in Florida and, and exactly that. I always tend to gravitate towards having lady friends and, and I, and I, I never thought about that, Ryan, but that's such a great point. Interesting. And, and, and it is about safe. It does, you know, that kind of event, like you just said, imprints somewhere in your mind. And most of the stuff isn't true, but your mind is a, is a tool that can play tricks on you quite a bit. So that is something to really share that. And, and, you know, it takes a lot of courage and bravery to do that because, and I joke about this, but it's not funny. But when I came out, it was amazing to me how many people in private messaging, both men and women would message me and would tell me about similar things. So you're, you're 110% right, brother this happens a lot more than we'd like to say that it does or think that it does. And there are many, many, there's tens of thousands of people out there like you and me who have similar stories. So, and I know the stories about other things right now than it, we, we went to that, but you know, that's what human beings do. We gravitate towards the common ground. And if we can take your experience and I can take mine and help somebody else, then, then, then we're taking that trauma into something better. Absolutely. Yep. And it doesn't have to define us. And, you know, the other thing that I've been, really been trying to do as of recently is to find the lessons or the gifts and the things that happen to me that are very uncomfortable. And you know what? What comes to mind is the fact that, you know what? I've been chosen for something horrible to happen to me. By the way, it happened to certain family members as well, is I have decided that it stops with me, that I will not repeat the cycle of which was done to me. And I feel like I'm a chosen one. And so as horrible as a lot of these things have been, because I've been through multiple life-threatening illnesses, again, I feel like I'm the chosen one to say that, you know, it starts with me, that I will stop the cycle. I will not repeat what was done to me. And I'm here to be a pioneer and shed some light on some things to really help people, you know, move from where they're at to where they want to go. Well, like I said, you know, that's, that's courage personified and and what you're doing, you know, I was reading a book called The Fellowship of the River and t- talks about ancestral trauma, which is what I experience and you experience and anybody out there that's been abused like that. It's just it's a cycle that continues over and over and over again. And if we were to do a, 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 a lineage back, how, how we ended up where we ended up, you know, it probably goes back for centuries. And 
wow, you're a true warrior, brother. And that's, I just can't say enough about that realization that you're ending the ancestral trauma of your lineage, just like I chose to do. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thanks for allowing me to share it. And so as you could imagine, you know, Mm -hmm. I was doing wild things as a teenager. One of them was I got into drug dealing because that was some of what I had seen from adults and people older than me. And I didn't even really want to do it. But you know what? I ended up really liking it because I felt needed. People would page me. I'm kind of dating myself. (laughs) People would page me (laughs) saying that they had, you know, would want something, right? And I felt validated, which is huge because, so remember this, as far as your audience goes, is that people want to be validated, regardless of how it shows up, right? Is we want to be seen, heard, valued, validated, okay? And so I was able to receive that through drug dealing of all things. And what happened was I had I was doing it for a couple of years, if I remember right. And my friend tried to rob me one day. And my brother taught me, like, in this drug game, you never trust anyone. So you always got to be ready for something. And essentially, I had a knife in my shoe alongside my ankle. And so when this guy, tried, my so-called friend, tried to rob me, I attempted to stab him. Now, the problem was I didn't know what the heck I was doing, right? And so the joke is I wasn't cut out for it. <laughs> yeah, literally, so, yeah. I get it, man. So, so I, I, cut my, I nearly cut my finger off when I tried to stab the guy because I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And that was one of my somewhat wake-up calls. That is where I decided to go into the military because I knew that I needed some kind of discipline. I knew that I wanted to make a change. I just did not know how to get there from where I was. And so my logic was, I'll, go, I'll join the army and I'll go overseas, number one, to run away because the guy and his crew threatened to blow my head off with a shotgun. So I did run. And number two is I was like, well, give me military police. And my thinking was that that would force me to clean up and, and be on the straight and narrow. And I didn't, again, know how to clean myself up. And I figured the army and military police would allow me to do that. And so that's how I got into working with dogs, actually. And so what's funny is you got the former drug dealer now working a drug detection dog in the army. <laughs> Man, what the, the irony in that. But so where did you grow? Did you grow up on the West Coast? I did. Yep. I grew up in Southern California in Orange County in LA. We bounced around quite a bit. Did you uh, and then you went where was the military police? Was that McClellan? Oh, yeah. So I went to school at Lackland or sorry, that was canine school. I went to Fort Leonard. Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri in right. 2000. Yeah. And then and then from there, and then that's where MP school was at. Was it Leonard Wood too? It was all there at, at Leonard Wood, exactly. And so the AIT, basic and AIT were there at Fort Leonard Wood. They call it Fort Lost in the Woods. And from there, I went directly to Monheim, Germany for two years because well, I had had the contract. Overseas. Well, let me, ask you, let me ask you a question. So here you are, former LA or West Coast drug dealer making the choice, knowing that you have to do something to change. Otherwise you're going to end up just a statistic. And when you got to the service, when you got to Fort Leonard Wood, tell me, did you have an aha moment and you went, holy cow, I'm really here now. This is a whole different ball game. Was there anything like that that just sunk into your psyche once you got boots on the ground in Missouri? No, there wasn't. You know, I could say this is that I kind of had my feet in two areas. One was sports. I was always really good at sports. And without sports, I probably would have been locked up as a kid. 
And so sports did keep me a little bit straight, but you know, my friends and I would get high before the basketball game in high school, like, you know, just dumb stuff. And anyway, so sports really did help me. And so I did get a little bit of structure in sports. And so that did trans and I've always enjoyed being active. And so that was really nice as well. When I would, when I joined the army and went to basic was like they're PT, PT. I'm like, Hey, I love this stuff. Come on, give me more of it. Like <laughs> no problem. But there wasn't really an aha moment, but I definitely struggled fitting in. Like I would, you know, get in fights, beat people up, get beat up in basic. You know, I just, yeah, I had that mouth man, like that I was using on the streets out here and stuff. So, you know, I, I got checked, but wasn't really open to learning lessons and didn't understand what respect was. So you say it was more like a rude awakening once you finally got there. Not really, man. I was so, I was so clueless. You know, you, I, the truth is this, is that, you know, I've been, I've been half dead most of my life, John. And so being half dead makes it so that you don't really pick up on the lessons that are right in front of you. Right. Good point. Yeah. So, okay. So then you graduated. How did you feel when you graduated and, and did, did anybody show up? That's, that's a really good question also. That, that's I appreciate that. No one's ever asked me that either. Um, my grandparents showed up who, again, they were the number one constant in my life. And my mom did show up. Uh, my father didn't. They kicked me out of the house when I was 17. I, my dad and stepmom kicked me out of the house when I was 17. I failed to mention that. And so they didn't show up. In fact, I didn't talk to them for about 12 years, my dad and stepmom. But my mother did show up. Now, the interesting thing about my mother is um, she's been notorious for saying she would do things and not always doing them. And so she showed up, but she showed up late. Like she missed everything. She pretty much was there for the after party. But one of the most profound things had happened, and I'm curious if your audience or even you, John, could relate that when I had graduated basic and we were doing our last and final march, I will never forget the sense of pride and the energy all in my body radiating with 150 of us marching in cadence. It was something that I'll never forget. And I still miss that to this day. No, I really miss that. I hear you, brother. You know, there is something when you're there, it's almost like one machine, but it's, it's even more surreal than that. I don't think there's a word. It, it is a feeling that comes over you. And, and I think what you just said, amazing pride feeling a certain amount of honor, man, we're touching upon a lot of things here because you're bringing back memories, man, that I miss too. There was, you know, and some, some people may have hated marching, but you know, I kind of enjoyed it. You know, the hours and the hours we spent on the parade field, you know, going back and forth at first, I didn't like it, but then I got into it like you just described. And yeah, I miss that, man. I miss it a lot. There's a deep soul to it when you have, again, all, all these individual people as one, it's just so powerful. And I, man, I, I really do miss this sense of cohesion that we once had. And um, yeah, I can't say that I was a fan of say regular marching, but when we would really sing with our soul and our hearts and everything that we had had that man, woo, that was magical. That's one of the greatest memories of my life up to this point. Uh, present for sure i remember airborne on. we'd go there we'd get our we'd get our laundry bag in the morning right we'd make this big hullabaloo but i mean but it was it was it was a lot of fun when you look back on it 
a lot of camaraderie, a lot of good guys from all over the place. And uh, it's amazing how they can take people from every walk of life, every type of income group, genders, religions, whatever, races, and they and they mold them into one force. And there's just something, it's almost spiritual. Right. Yep. I could definitely see that. So tell us about Mannheim and then about your first deployment. Right. So Mannheim. Mannheim, Germany was incredible because as a kid, I never left California. So the, <laughs> I've been lived in California and then Germany. <laughs> and so that was really eye-opening. And you know what? I loved it. I embraced it. John, I went to like 20-something countries on the tour buses while out there. And I would travel alone because a lot of my friends wanted to just party. Now, I did party a lot. I mean, it was like literally a second job that I had. We would go out six, seven days a week. I was just telling my girlfriend the other night, like I would drink about 12 to 15 rum and Cokes because back then you could do like, oh, you can drink uh, clubs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was like 12, 25 francs, I think it was, Deutschmark, should I say. And it'd be like 12 bucks or something crazy. And you know what? I loved it, man. And why was I drinking? To be social. You know, I didn't know how to dance. I still don't. And that allowed (laughs) me to feel like I was a bit more comfortable in my own skin. And I'm really glad that I did it. I have no regret. I was involved in, you know, some wild stuff like stabbings and things like that. Drunk fighting with Turkish folks (laughs) in Mannheim. There's a huge population of Turks. And I love Turks, by the way. One of my business partners is Turkish in Charlotte, North Carolina. Anyways, I love Germany so much. In fact, I even say that part of my heart is still there. I was was born in Stuttgart. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, my dad was an army officer. That's where I was born in 1959, man. Wow. I, I just love Germany, man. I'm really looking forward to going back as an adult. And well, should I say far more mature? Because I was like 19 when I was there. Yeah. And I'm really excited to go back one day. So Germany was absolutely incredible. And then from Germany, I did a COT, a consecutive overseas tour to what was it? Seoul, Korea. And prior to Seoul, Korea, I went to canine school. And that was that was really exciting. 11 weeks there at Lackland Air Force Base and partied a whole lot there as well. And so I've definitely got a lot of that out of my system. And so I'm 39 now and I, I don't party too much because I've just done so much of it in my 20s. <laughs> understand that for sure. Okay, so you're in Seoul, Korea. And then from there, you deployed to Iraq? No, from Seoul, I then went to Lackland. Fort Carson, yeah. Colorado. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I went to Lackland before Seoul, Korea. Now, Seoul, Korea was in- instrumental in that that was my very first military working dog. His name was Raleigh. I think it was Bravo 187 was his ID. And he was a huge German shepherd, really smart. This dog was so cool. I could stand in the middle of the obedience course, meaning, you know, there's these different obstacles the dog would have to maneuver around and over and all that kind of stuff. I could stand in the middle of the obstacle course and tell Raleigh course, just one word. And he would do the whole course all on his own. He was just so smart, man. And I really fell in love with that dog. In fact, Raleigh was like the first being that I ever truly loved besides my grandparents. And it felt just so incredible. And then I had to leave. Now, I hadn't thought about that. I never thought that one day Raleigh and I will be no longer. Because the way it works, back when I was in, I believe it's still the same, 
is that when a soldier goes to a new duty station, the dog stays at the existing duty station. Dogs don't travel to duty stations. And so I had to leave Raleigh. That's got to be was, tough. That's got to be tough on the dogs and on the trainers. It and is. The handlers. It's tough the trainers. It was tougher on me than Raleigh. And the reason is that and this is part of like what I know about dog behavior and psychology is that dogs are very in the moment. And so, yes, Raleigh probably missed me for a week or two. But if someone came in and was a great leader and treated Raleigh very well and gave Raleigh what Raleigh needed, Raleigh's in the moment, man. That's what's so beautiful about dogs. They are very present. I then, sadly, I put up walls. I put up walls with dogs, with military working dogs, because I did not want to get hurt again. You see, I have my limiting belief is I am not enough, and it stems from being abandoned as a child. And so that abandonment of Raleigh and I essentially re-triggered that for me. So then moving forward, all my other working dogs that I had, I never truly connected with. I never fell in love with. I never let my walls down to truly bond with them because right. I was scared that I would fall in love and it would end. Huh. Did that affect the missions at all or no? No, because with missions, there's, there's no, this, no feelings, man. You know, I mean, we're doing, we're going, in, we're doing bomb threats. Like when you really love the animal you're like, I'm not putting you in harm's way, man. <laughs> no, I right? get it, man. For sure. Yeah. It's such as business. Right. And that. Tell us about dog handling then in combat. I mean, not, I don't think I've had a dog handler on here looking for bombs. Were you looking for residue? What kind of stuff what, did the dog do? Right. Well, what was interesting about my experience was that as a canine handler, you're kind of like special operations in that you don't really have a unit. You kind of just do your own thing. And so I deployed with just my dog and I, right, which is kind of crazy. No, it's, so, it's kind see, of cool and it makes sense. It, it is cool until you need support, right? <laughs> and then, Yeah, exactly. Right. And so I remember that my supervisor was like, hey, man, you need some you need some additional gear before going down range. And I volunteered to go. We got a tasking for two handlers to go down range. And myself and another soldier had volunteered because we were the only two that had not deployed yet. Everyone had deployed and everyone had families and it made sense that we would go. And so he essentially gives me this catalog of some like tactical equipment to order. And I was like, what, what do I need? I don't know what I need. And he's like, just order whatever you think, man. Just go through, you have, you know, you can spend a thousand bucks, just figure out what you need. And so that's kind of illustrates my experience. Literally, I deployed by myself with that other handler on an evergreen plane. It was just us and the pilots and our two dogs. And I never received one day of training prior to combat, which means I was very clueless. Wow. So here you are, a very special mission, special forces type of mission or special operations. And no training for combat whatsoever. Here's your dog. This is where you need to go. You're on your own. Pretty much. I didn't even know where I was going. I just knew I was going to the Middle East. Then we went to Kuwait and they're like, okay, you're going to Iraq. And then I think from Kuwait, we figured out I was going to Mosul and then the other handler was going to Baghdad. And sad to say the other handler who I was stationed with at Carson, the day before R&R, this poor guy went on one last mission and in, while in a Humvee, he and his dog got blown up. And so the soldier had third degree burns all over his body and the poor dog, Dak, uh, burned to death. And 
the day before R&R, man. And, you know, I definitely have like some survivor's guilt from that in that, you know, there was a 50-50. I could have went to Baghdad and he could have went to Mosul, but it didn't happen that way. And so that was that was really tough. And I am proud to say that it's kind of a funny canine handler thing, but I have scars from that dog, two of them, from our bite training. He was one of the toughest dogs in our kennel. That dog was just an incredible military working dog. And so uh, that's just me, you know, honoring him for his sacrifice. His name was Dak. And um, I'm happy that I was able to train with him. And, and um, we're sorry that, that, you know, he transitioned the way that he had. Definitely sorry about that. And thanks for sharing that with us. Ryan, can you think of maybe one or two instances overseas in that combat situation that just stands out? Yeah. Well, I also want to, yes, I will. And then I want to also let your audience know the truth of, of my experience, because when they hear that I was an explosive canine handler in Missoula, and if you Google Missoula, you'll see like a lot of crazy stuff went on. You know, the perception that one may have isn't always aligned with what really did happen. And so I believe in being straight up and authentic. And so I will let your audience know what my experience was. And so one of the things that was really imprinting, and this will be a nice segue into the next, is I remember I was on a, again, I would essentially have like infantry or SF pick me up from the canine section because we didn't have vehicles. They would pick me up and then they would brief me on where we were going. And then I was often in a, in a striker with infantry. I was in a striker. Now, what's interesting about that is I don't see anything around. Like, I don't know where we're at. So when the hatch opens, I have no clue what it looks like. Right. Right. And so that was kind of trippy for sure. And the other part was, uh, so as it relates to what stands out, I remember I was in a striker and I believe it was a first sergeant. I was in striker and there was a litter um, in the middle of the striker. And I remember that the first sergeant's like, hey, you need to go and um, lay on this litter and put your dog on top of you and I want you to hold him until I tell you otherwise. And I was like, okay, but why? Like, what's going on? He's like, we get hit every single time on this route. And I remember like laying there with Zito on top of me and we like, we looked into each other's eyes and you can see like this fear and this death. Like we're just waiting to get blown up kind of thing. And it never happened. We never got hit. And he's like, okay, man, you're clear. He's like, I can't believe it. He's like, this is never, this, we've never been so lucky. And that was my experience time and time again. Again, I'm working with infantry and special operations downrange. And I continue to get blessed. I continue to be very fortunate. And I'm searching for bombs. And so my tap, my jobs would be to go on raids with infantry. We would knock down doors and search for caches in people's homes. We would search open fields for landmines. And then I would do, you know, like secret missions with SF. And I got to say, working with special operations, I talked to Jocko recently at, a, at an event, New Media Summit in San Diego. And I, I just told him, man, thank you so much for you and, and your brothers of like how you guys operate. Because I never felt so safe being in anyone's presence as I had with special operations. They communicate so well and they were so professional that you knew that like you stood the best chance of coming home when you were on missions with those guys, even though you're doing crazy stuff. 
You know, and I and I had heard too that dog handlers, you guys had like the crosshairs on your helmet. That's right, man. There's a huge bounty on us. Now, what's what's interesting is that's true, but when we're walking through a town, everyone's getting out of our way, man, because in the Islam or Muslim culture, like dogs are very nasty. And so it's kind of like roaches when you turn on a light switch, not to say that they're roaches by any means. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. But it's like people just scatter when they see the dog, man, because they think they're so dirty. So that was kind of cool. It was crazy. And you know what? To be fair, I had PTSD before I even went to the war because I was doing bomb threats stateside. And I took my job so serious, man, that like I took on this mantra, I am dead, to tell myself that I could be of service and that I'll find this bomb, whether I blow up or not. That's my job. And so I took it so serious that I never let go of this mantra, I am dead. And I share that to share with your audience how important it is, the words that we use, because they can potentially become our reality. And that's part of what I feel my multiple life-threatening illnesses. So yeah, it's very important that we're careful with what we, what we choose to say. Wow. Well, I'm glad you made it back and I'm you know sorry about your friend and Dak certainly brings back memories for you, I'm sure. But, but so, so you went through your deployment and you came back home all in one piece, so to speak. I was so fortunate. I yeah. did. You know, I didn't get blown up. I never got hit with an IED and I just, I feel so fortunate and it just, uh, play on words, blew, blows my mind away that I, I was that lucky and that fortunate. And um, now I'm just really, you know, each day real feel very thankful. And, and I got to say that back then, again, being half dead, I wasn't really awoke to how, how fortunate I was. I get it now, but it took a lot of waking up. I can only imagine. I, I get I get some of it, but not all of it. But I'm with you, brother. So so you came back and, and you went through your transition. What was your transition like? And, and you know, let me ask you this first before you would you do it all over again? Absolutely. I wanted to go back overseas as a civilian because I was, I've been, I've been about money, man, most of my life, life up until recently, like literally just a few years ago. And so a civilian dog handler was making like 135,000 a year. And so I got out after deployment, I was due to get out just a couple months later. I wasn't medically retired from being injured or anything. My six years was up. And I was like, great, now I'm going to go back overseas with Blackwater and make 135000 a year. And we had the contracts and everything dialed in, but they changed the contract at the last minute. They said they wanted me to be an operator. They were so smart. They're like, look, when the dog gets tired, you're going to put the dog up and you're going to go, you know, pound the ground and be a foot soldier as spe like special operations as an operator. I was like, cool. How much more do I get paid? It's like nothing. I was like, no deal. So then I went overseas to the Marshall Islands in Micronesia in the South Pacific. Oh, yeah. And so I was going to, from combat, I went to the South Pacific and worked a drug dog as a contractor wearing shorts, short sleeve shirt, and a nine mil on my hip. <laughs> a big difference for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So then, so, okay. So when, but when you, when you got out, was there any kind of, did you feel like, the transition was smooth for you. Did you already have work waiting then? I had, yes, I did. I had work. I had work waiting. I guess I was in demand because of my skill. And I kind of take a lot of what I bring to the table for granted. I don't think much of it. 
And so, yeah, I was able to get hired very quickly, and that was a great blessing. Now, what's interesting is that I was kind of in this – it's a funny time because we're in quarantine right now with this whole coronavirus thing, and you're kind of in quarantine on the island where I was. It's half a mile wide by three and a half miles long. I mean, we're talking about a very small, isolated place. So PTSD couldn't show up too much. Right. I mean, it could have, but it didn't show up too much until – Again, combat to the Marshall Islands for two years. And then after the Marshall Islands, I moved back to California. And then that's when PTSD really started to ramp up, as in seeing trash on the road, not wanting to run over it, not being able to step on a sewer manhole cover, not being able to put my back to the door at a restaurant. All those types of things started to surface. Did you have to reach out for help for that, Ryan, or did you just kind of power through it? I entertained getting some help, but I didn't really lean in and wasn't really able to do the work. And it wasn't up until a few years that I really leaned in and did the work on, you know, PTSD and trauma and really becoming the person that I want to be. And so, no, I can't say that I just kind of checked the box. It's kind of like people get a dog and they're like, okay, I need to get it food. I need to take it to the vet. And I need to get training for it. They just check the box whether they really want to do it or not. That's what I was doing. Well, you know, thank God you're still here because, you know, I think I think the point to all that is, is you can power through. But if I guess if you're in that place and you need to, to you need help, by all means, reach out and get it. Oh, please do. And so I'd love to segue then even more into that, because, look, if universe, the God or higher power, whatever you want to call it, is going to wake you up, whether you you choose to acknowledge it or not. And so after the islands, I went to uh, Colorado because I was involved. We were talking about adrenaline and exciting things. I rented an ATV with an ex-girlfriend and I, and I was in California. She was in Colorado. We met halfway in Utah. And I remember driving this ATV and the faster I would go, the tighter she would squeeze me. So then of course I want to go faster. And I remember seeing five to 52 miles per hour on the speedometer of this ATV. <laughs> now the problem, <laughs> now the pro- and that's fine. You're just you know straight straight away, no problem. The problem was there was a loose there was loose gravel on the on the ground, and there was a curve that I had to maneuver, and I couldn't. And so I was going way too fast. I knew I could not maneuver and make it. So I yelled, "Jump!" to land onto the trail. Of course, great in theory. It's like I was watching too many Hollywood movies or something. Because that's not what happened. We didn't jump off and land on the trail. Unfortunately, I threw over the handlebars. I rolled down the mountain. I busted my helmet open on a boulder, and I woke up in a stream choking water. And this poor woman was stuck under the ATV, and I could not get it off of her due to the incline, and the ATV was pinned against a tree. And so I had to look into this beautiful woman's eyes, and I had to let her know that I had to leave and go get help because we were you couldn't see us from the trail. It was too steep. And we were in the middle of nowhere as well. And so it took me 45 minutes to get help because there was no cell phone signal. And I'm happy to say that she survived after getting a flight for life. And then that prompted me to move to Colorado to take care of her and to nurse her back to her health. And so that's why I moved from California to Colorado. It was to make my wrong a right. You know, I, I take full responsibility for my reckless behavior and actions. And it's been a long time, man, for me to. Um, forgive myself for that. Kudos to you. And how's she doing now? Well, that's a, that's another discussion. She 
So she made a nearly a, nearly a full recovery. She ended up having 12 broken bones, a collapsed lung and punctured, punctured kidney. And I got to say, she has been one of my most favorite, dearest people that I love the most in, in this lifetime that I have. And so that was in 2009. And four years ago, uh, so we did break up after I moved to Colorado, like uh, 10 months later, but we always remained friends. And she's just such a beautiful person, uh, her soul, not, not just physically, but just her soul and her presence. You would, you would just have loved her. And so four years ago, I was on a cruise with my ex-wife, who was not her. And we got a phone call saying that that woman was involved in the ATV accident and that she died on, on impact. And so the police had, had called her family and was like, we need you to identify the body. And her mom's like, no way, it's not possible. Like my child is afraid of ATV. She was in a bad accident. And I'm sad to say that, you know, she, she did die um, immediately on that second ATV accident. Um, and so that, that's been really tough, man. And you know what I've also learned in that is that I can still have a relationship with, with anyone or anything, meaning a dog as well, that has transitioned. It's just not as physical, but I can still have a relationship. And so I still do communicate with her and I still do honor her. And it makes me smile. I'm smiling right now just thinking of her and how beautiful and wonderful her soul and spirit is. And so, yeah, that was, that was tough, man. And so I then still stayed in Colorado and I opened up a pet dog training company. And so that's how I got into pet dogs was out there in Colorado. Well, we were going to get to that, you know, the world of dog training, but anyhow, sorry about your friend and, and thank you for sharing that um, event in your life that certainly it means a lot. And, and it just, you know, it's, it's, it's one of life's, I guess, curveballs that we, that we have to deal with. And, uh, I'm just sorry about that, but it, it let, it leads you into what you're doing now. Absolutely. It has. And I also just want to share that in my life, and this is really valuable to your audience is that I have not paid attention to the lessons that are continuously in front of me. I haven't. And you're going to, you're going to hear that here very soon here in probably about five to seven minutes. And I will say that, unfortunately, she, she didn't pay attention. And again, I love her. And there is no disrespect at all. I just, again, if we can share this to maybe save someone else, then I think we're doing some good work. And so in short, like when something happens, we got to look at what is the lesson, right? And so if, if she was able to do that, then, you know, maybe she would still be here with us. You know, that's a, one of the best points that I think anybody's ever made on this show is, you know, we have to look at the lesson if it keeps coming back to us. And I got to tell you, I'm, I'm telling you, Ryan, there's, there's, there's different pathways, but there's many similar things that I'm, that I'm hearing coming from you. And, you know, I've been the same way, you know, you know, in fact, they called me rockhead, you know, when I was going through <laughs> army training, cause I, I just, I, I had a tough time learning. And of course that was in training, but a lot of times also in my life, the same things kept happening over and over and over again until I took personal responsibility. I guess you could say shit just kept happening and it, and it will, if you don't learn those lessons, let's drive that. Let's drive that point home even more. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. And so I'm in Colorado. I open up this pet dog training company and 
it was it was nuts. I made ten grand my first month, and then that it just continued to be like that and even better. And so, in two and a half years, I made close to a million dollars training pet dogs. And so, I share that not to impress anyone, but to impress upon your your audience that, folks, if I can make money training dogs, you all can make money at whatever your genius is as well. And so, I just encourage you all to do that. Now, that's phenomenal. Congratulations. That you know that's uh. After what you've been through, some of the things, that's definitely a success story. If anything else happens, we know you're going on to bigger and better things too, but what a success. Congratulations. Oh, thank you, man. Now, now, how, how did that happen? Part of it is I'm a very much outside the box thinker. I'm very driven and I had PTSD. You see, I use work as my heroin or my alcohol. I was a workaholic. And so rather than think about PTSD, I would stay busy by being of service and satisfying my ego of 10 to 12 clients per day. I would just stay busy. And then I didn't have to deal with PTSD as much. And so that was part of my success. And I will say that I was also doing business from my ego. I was doing it to, for me to feel as though I was valued, right? rather than doing my business from my heart and wanting to truly be of service. Now, I still was of service, of course, and got incredible results for people, but it's just a fundamental shift as it relates to my mindset as when I am sharing my craft, which I think is very important. Now, I was sharing how I was booked like a month out. I had commercials on TV and I made all that money. We had a huge facility and I ended up having stomach pain for five months. And I'm 30 years old, 30 years old at the time. Now, this stomach pain resulted in me rushing to the ER at the Cheyenne VA. And I'll never forget my conversation with that doctor. I was like, hey, doc, I'm in a lot of pain. Just give me some pain meds and let me be on my way, man. I got clients I got to go help. And he was so kind. Mm-hmm. And he was filling around on my stomach. And he said, no, you really need to stay here. And within 24 hours, I was under the knife having surgery. And that was to remove a mask because I had stage three colon cancer at the age of 30. And when we talk about Rockhead, I don't know, man, I may be one upping you and you're going to hear it in a bit. We'll see. And so still not willing to acknowledge what was going on. And I remember that I was going through six months of chemo uh, ahead of me. But after my very first round of chemo on the 4th of July, a day that I would often go and hide in the Colorado mountains so that I did not have to deal with the fireworks, the sounds, the sights, and all the people, right? I would hide, similar to how I ran away and I hid when I joined the army overseas. And this year, though, I was not able to run away and hide because I had a client's dog at my house doing a board and train where we keep the dog at the house and train it for a week and bring it back. Good to go. Well, that dog actually saved my life because at 1.30 a.m., I started to feel very weak and I started to sweat profusely. I'm talking about like sweat dripping off my head. My limbs feel like jello and it's like kind of hard to even talk. And that was in, again, July 4th, May was the cancer. I end up having what they call a widow maker heart attack on the 4th of July, just a few months after the heart cancer. (laughs) Yeah, man. And you would think that one of those things would wake me up. Now, what's interesting, I remember being in the hospital bed, and I was working so hard, John, that I felt relief laying in the hospital bed because at least then I could just relax. 
and slow down. How pathetic is that? <laughs> well, you know, it, it's again, it's just another testimony and another perfect example of what you're talking about, you know, and I, and I, you know, it is an escape. It's a certain part of escape is I, I would see myself doing things or be involved in things that I knew I shouldn't have been doing, or why am I doing this again? And, and, and I know this is only going to hurt either emotionally or financially, or even physically like what you went through, but I did it anyways. You know, there's, you know, some people learn very young not to do that and and they find things differently. But I, I learned very late in life and you kind of like are, you're an in-betweener, man. You learned it a little bit younger than me, but at least you learned it and at least you're being able to take that, Ryan, and help people, man. But I haven't yet as it relates to the story. And this is good. <laughs> but maybe you will. The, that's right. Now, maybe this is the most powerful part of our conversation here today, especially to be of service to your audience. And that is that a month after the heart attack, I went back to work. I needed my drug again. Now, the problem was I never dealt with what my healer calls the thing under the thing. And I got to thank Dr. Michael Hoffrath for that. It's the thing underneath the thing that we're pissed off about people. Remember that. You're not pissed off that someone slammed the door. It's deeper than that. Go deeper. What's really going on? Okay. And so I was never willing to address the thing underneath the thing. So when I go back to work a month after the heart attack, this is an example of not addressing things and how they can manifest and impact your life. Again, going back to work a month after the heart attack, I had a huge facility, a dog training facility, and my dog, it's a Belgian Malinois. And those of you that don't know how to, don't know what the breed looks like, it's a German Shepherd that has the personality of an alligator on a bunch of five-hour energy, and they're super wild and hyper, and I, and I love them. I have another one now. They're and beautiful so dogs, dog, by the way. They're beautiful, stunning, and they use them for police and military work. Now, my Belgian Malinois named Montage, she had a little sore on her paw, and she kept licking it, and my logic was that this wet wound won't heal. It needs to dry, and so I put a muzzle on Montage. The problem was when I had done that, she charged after me. She wanted me to get the muzzle off, and I acted out of my fears. I acted out of trauma. I acted out of PTSD that I never dealt with, and I overreacted. And so Montage comes after me, and I toss her numerous times to try to protect myself because I was panicked from all the health crap that I had went through as well. And so she keeps coming, and then I sock her with a closed fist a couple of times. Now, I was not trying to hurt her. I was overreacting, and I was acting out of fear. And out of fear can be durability and potentially aggression. And that's what had happened. And so even though Montage did not get hurt, my office manager turned me in for animal cruelty. And again, I was at the top of the game, man. I was, you know, booked out a month, commercials on TV, this kind of stuff. And so I ended up getting an attorney and the attorney watched the video because I had security cameras in my facility that had caught what had happened. And I didn't care because I'm like, no, I'm in charge. Dog can't do that. Not cool. Uh, and she watched the video, and the attorney's like, oh, you're fine, man. The dog's not injured. It's no big deal. But the media got a hold of the story. And, and then I was on the front page of the newspaper. Well, we know what the, you know, never mind. Without, But you know you know what we say. When the media gets a hold of something like that, they've got to sell it as something very sensational. So it got on the front page of the newspaper? It was on the news as well. This thing became known nationwide. And I lost the business. I went to jail for a month. And I was forced out of dogs for two years. And the worst part was they took my two Belgian Malinois. And then I hid for five years, man. 
I hid. Now, wow. How are you feeling, man? <laughs> Obviously not, not too damn good, but, but that's. You know, my attorney said, look, you don't know your mortality. You have six more months of chemotherapy to go through and you need to just take a plea. So that's what we did. And so I, I, I finished the chemo and then I, I did my jail sentence. And from the jail sentence, I got out and I continued to keep myself locked up just in the house. And I had a huge pity party and I hid from the world for five years, man. And I did, I had no purpose. I didn't do anything with my life. And then it was about three years ago to this day that I thought I was having a second heart attack. And the second heart attack, I'm about 35 years old. The second heart attack, I feel really weak. I'm starting to sweat again. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been here before. I know what's happening. And I feel this darkness come over me. I, I can barely talk. I call 911. I'm mumbling. And I'm like, please come. I think I'm having a heart attack. And my head just wants to lay down on the ground and give up. And my head's about uh, two feet from the ground. And I just feel so weak. I feel this darkness coming over me. And I have this realization that at 35 years old, this is about to be my last moment on earth. And in that moment, something came over me that shook me up to say, knock it off and get your life back. And that's when I reached out to this higher power and I begged for my life. I admitted that I never stepped into being the person that I knew that I could be. I admitted that I wasn't doing the work and I promised to this higher power that I would transform myself and I would do the work, whatever that looked like. And then I promised that I would be of service. And next thing you know, once I committed to, I will share with others how I did it. Once I had said that, I started to feel better. No, 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 man. That is awesome. But you know what, Ryan, what I love about that, and you said it a couple of times in our conversation is do the work. And the work's not easy. You know, no. some of these self-help books that say, oh, just think this and thank that and say it a hundred times and life will be rosy. It's not, no, no, that doesn't work. Do the work and you have to dive deep and you have to look at that person in the mirror. You know, you've been there lots of times and you got to say, you know what? I love that person. I love you and I forgive you and whatever you've done in your life, it's not your fault. Now that's very simplistic, but it's the reality. Absolutely. I, you know, again, my healer, one of my healers says it very well to illustrate what, exactly what you're saying. It's a matter of going into the swamp lands of the soul. Man, you couldn't have, I mean, they couldn't have said it better, neither <laughs> in the way you articulate it. You know, I'm, uh, yeah, that is, right? that is heavy, heavy, powerful stuff. And I think there's a realization point with most people in their lives, some point or another that they're maybe not dealing with the trauma or an incident or something that sooner or later, you're going to have to, you're going to have to visit the swamp. I even, now I got a, a name for this interview, but no, no, we'll do something different. <laughs> but, but, uh, so you had the revelation, you, you had this extreme moment of clarity and now I mean, I got, I got to say, and I'm not just saying, you know, there's an aura about this guy. You can probably feel it now, but tell us about how you took all of that passion and all of that transformative brain power and got the dog, a world dog training going. 
Right. Well, you know, John, I feel as though I owe dogs my life. And that's for a few reasons. One, Zito kept me safe overseas. And I feel like I owe Zito my life. And the other part was that when I came home from the war, I was numb. I was shut off from people. I remember trying to hug my, no, not trying, hugging my ex-wife, holding her in the kitchen, waiting for a feeling and nothing would happen. I remember looking at higher power and like, please give me something. Allow me to feel something. Nothing would come. And dogs, dogs were who I was able to feel for first after the war. And so I feel like I owe dogs my life as well for that because dogs showed me how to love again. And so with that, what I do is I have multiple, three companies and all of them put the spotlight on dogs, either bringing in the lessons that they share and translating that to people and also in business or providing natural products to help pets that are dealing with the elements that I had dealt with, such as anxiety, such as cancer, such as inflammation. Yeah. And so that's where the canine mentalist was born and world of dog training. You know, there's close to 2 million pets euthanized every year in America alone. And my goal, John, is to create this online dog training course. And we have 100 videos thus far. And to create this for a fraction of my in-person rate, which is hundreds of dollars per hour, for a fraction of the cost, online dog training so that no longer is there a valid reason to return a dog back to the shelter because that dog is naughty. Because for 39 bucks a month, you can learn on your own through these videos and have a better experience with you and your dog. And that's what it's all about. Absolutely. You know, that's like majorly giving back. You know, I love what you say about dogs saved your life because they literally can. And, you know, we lost a dog recently, was only right. three years old, but I tell you, it, it it shattered my wife and me. We didn't expect to lose a, a dog so young, but you don't realize. Well, you do realize because pet pet owners and dog lovers especially know how loyal they are. And oh, yes. yeah, they become part of the family. So, you know, the canine mentalist, are you kidding me? It's, it's that, that, that to me is brilliant because able to force multiply by using these videos, you can help save hundreds of thousands of dogs nationwide, probably globally. Once this thing starts to take off, which it already has. And wow, that that's a huge give back. And there's, there's nothing, you know, I think they found out and you might even be able to relate or give me more information, but dogs bones have been found with human bones from the beginning. And Dogs have this DNA imprint themselves with humans. I mean, I think that dogs and, and, and horses are very similar when it they comes are. to their connection with humans. So any, anything else on that? Such beautiful beings. And, you know, John, like I, it, it took me doing the work and I'm still doing it, folks. Ryan is not saved or healed or anything else like that. I'm just further evolved than where I once was. Okay. Now, in doing the work, I've been so intrigued by human psychology, and I've always loved this dog psychology since 2002 when I first started training dogs. And now that I know more about human psychology and how I think and how you all think, is I'm bridging that gap so that we can have these incredible lessons and, and visualize and see these reminders that dogs give us every single day when they're in front of us, such as unconditional love, such as enthusiasm, such as not taking things so personally and holding grudges. And so those were the three points that I highlighted in the second TEDx talk 
titled Let's Treat Each Other More Like Dogs. I love it. I mean, there's, I love it. You know, and some people, you know, if you haven't had a dog or get one because they will certainly enrich your life and they, they become such a part of who we are that there's, there's no words that can describe it. And I think that work is phenomenal. I just know that, um, I know that you're on the right path now and you've always been on the right path. It's just that you were taking little side paths. Uh, but now you're there. So tell us how, tell us where you see yourself in five years. Sure. Five years. So I would envision that in five years, world of dog training will be serving about uh, 25 to 50,000 people online. And I will have a train the trainer program where we have trainers from world of dog training brand helping serve other people in person all over the, all over the globe. And I'm also creating a, a CBD brand, and I envision that that's going to be not just CBD, but we're getting into some rainforest supplements as well. And so I envision that integrated into the dog rescues in America. Because look, if we can have the shelter environment calmer, the dogs are going to be more adoptable, number one. And number two is if the dogs are calmer and less stressed, that's less disease. See, we're having a positive impact. And so I would like that product in there. And I also envision that the Canine Mentalist brand has partnered up with multiple corporate uh, peak performance trainers where we're bringing in these dog behavior and psychology lessons and translating this into the business world. And so that's that's really what it is. Right around the five-year mark, John, I want to be reinventing the microchip for dogs and starting to work on how we extend the life of dogs and improve their quality of life even more so. That's phenomenal. And for the, you know, CBDs or it's cannabidiol is a hemp-based treatment that has shown awesome progress in human emotional states and human behavior. And canines are very similar. And I, I think that's just phenomenal because dogs go through anxieties just like humans. And what a, what a brilliant idea to help the dogs as well with, with that product. And it's all natural, so you can't beat it. So let me ask you this. If you, what would you like the civilian world to know about veterans and especially combat veterans? Right. That we have a great level of drive and a great level of attention to detail that is like no other. And when we put our skills that have kept us in our service and have kept us alive, when we put them to good use and reframe them, they, these are special gifts and attributes that no one else possesses, possesses, and it can be of great value to one's organization. That's awesome. How about if somebody's out there suffering, a brother or a sister who wore the uniform and they're, they're back transitioning from combat and uh, they're having a rough time, what would you, Ryan, want them to know? What kind of advice could you give them? My advice is for them to email me. Ryan at worldofdogtraining.com because wherever they're at, I have likely been there. Maybe John has been there. Other people have been there. And so you're not alone. It takes just, please look here. Here's the thing. In any moment in life, we can truly make a change. And it's just incremental effort over and over and over. And so if you can just make that decision to reach out, I have so many resources that I'm happy to share and get people the support that they need, but it takes, um, essentially asking 
I like that. You know, and, and it's true. And you're actually much stronger when you do. You might not think about it, but when you do reach out for help, you'll find that initially you might feel like, holy heck, why did I just do that? But as time goes on and you start to do the work, you'll find out just how strong you truly are. That's really great advice, Ryan. And, uh, you know, if, if you had a mantra that you live by every day, you know, mm. tell us about it. Yes. I developed this mantra because I got tired of the obtrusive thoughts, thinking that I would get cancer. I would, they would come into my brain over a hundred times a day. I got sick and tired of being out in public and thinking everything would blow up or someone's going to shoot me. I got tired of looking at someone's hips and ankles and thinking that maybe they had a weapon. And so with that, I created this mantra. It's very simple. I am happy. You see, because when I was in PTSD or when I was living the old me, I was walking around with a chip on my shoulder. So number one, I'm happy. Number two, I'm healthy. And that's to rid those obtrusive thoughts of you're going to get cancer again. You can't run. Your heart's not healthy. You're going to pass out and die. So I am happy. I am healthy. I am humble. And that's because I've been able to achieve quite a bit as of late. And I want to make sure that I'm always grounded and I never forget who and what I really am and not get caught up in the stuff I'm doing on TV or whatever else, right? And so it's, I am happy, I am healthy, I am humble. I say that over and over when I'm in these types of environments where I'm starting to feel anxious. I like that. You know, the three H's of Ryan Matthews. And it's uh, that mantra, I could see that on a, on a t-shirt somewhere. You know, hashtags, you know, but that's awesome. And it's, and it's kept you going and it's something that you didn't just develop overnight. It's something that has been indicative of your entire life and you've learned some tough lessons and you've learned some valuable lessons. And, uh, it's humbling just to hear your story and, and to be able to take your time because I know how busy you are. I know we're going to be seeing you again. I know that there's a lot more ahead for us, Ryan and, and, and John, and we got, we got work to do, but you know, let me ask you this, you know, and you've been working with the dogs and you've been, you've served our country and you've helped thousands of dogs and people everywhere. You know, what does freedom mean to you? Freedom to me means the freedom to choose. The freedom to choose what you want to do with your life, the freedom to choose what you want to buy or not buy, the freedom to choose where you want to go or not go, the freedom to choose every single situation in life. It's, it's a freedom of choice without any restrictions or any type of obligation. To me, that's what freedom means. Awesome. You know, I've asked that question so many, many times, and I always get a different answer. And it just tells me freedom is not just one word. It means many different things and cool things to lots of people. And, you know, we've been talking, for those of you who might just listen or if you listen to the whole interview, which is great, you know, we've been having great conversation with Army veteran and dog handler. Sage Guru, uh, canine mentalist, uh, Mr. Ryan Matthews, who is a, uh, a stalwart guy. He never gives up. He's got a heart of gold. He loves animals. He loves people. And uh, he certainly turned a lot of things around in his life. And uh, all I can say is, you know, the world of dog training is going places. I mean, Ryan's even helping dogs with CBD. So, you know, that's how deep his love for animals goes. And all I can say is, man, I am, I'm privileged to be able to, to, to have your interview and, and to have made your acquaintance, you know, on the stage in Orlando. And, uh, I just wish you the best. And I hope that we see each other down the road. And if there's any 
thing that we can do, you know, let us know. We're here to help you and support you. So tell the listeners once again, Ryan, how they can reach you if, for more information about you or your dog training techniques or, or business. How, how do they get old of you? Absolutely. Well, first, John, you know, thank you so much. This has been truly one of my favorite interviews. And if people listen to me, you'll know that I don't share that at the end of interviews. So thank you for you and who you are, man. I, I really do appreciate you as a human being. And this has really been my honor. And um, as far as connecting with your audience, I really mean what I said, man. If someone is in true need, email me. And I don't normally give out my email. It's ryan at worldofdogtraining.com. As far as social media, easy. It's at I am Ryan Matthews. That's two T's and an S at the end. And I will give, give your audience a free week of the online dog training. It's DIY Dog Training On Demand. I'll share the link with John and we will have it somewhere in the show notes for the audience to get their dogs trained. Absolutely. You know, we are on the Heroes Media Group Network, Spotify and iTunes and all those great uh, platforms. We are definitely going to work hard to get the show out this episode. We do that for all episodes, but this one especially because uh, so, many, so much common ground here, brother. And, and, you know, I just really appreciate you and, and the things that you're doing to help people. And, and I know that uh, when people love dogs, they're, they're a lot deeper than what meets the eye. And you are a guy that's got it really going on. I appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much, man. Truly on my honor. I do mean that. God bless. Thanks, Ryan, for being here. Thank you. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken. Burn it down.